Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Living It with Chris Waddell. I am here with my good buddy, Scott Hollenbeck. Scott and I raced wheelchairs together. He is a five-time Paralympic medalist. In addition to being a medalist, he was actually really the leader of the U.S. contingent of wheelchair racers during our era. So somebody who, who, who created a great foundation. Can you tell me about the 800 meter in Barcelona in 1992? That was my first Paralympic Games. And I, I wasn't what to expect, uh, what that was going to be like. And it was, you know, w- would there be people in the stands? Would anybody care? And it was just off the hook. Um, I remember coming out that day and uh, I think it was like a 60, was it, was it a 50,000, maybe it was 50,000 person stadium right in that range. And when we come out, there was maybe 45,000 people there. <laughs> you know, so you're like, whoa. And of course, when you, when you are at a, a Olympic or a Paralympic venue, um, you're underneath the, the stadium for your event. And so as they're cheering for other crowds, like you're like literally dust is coming off the ceiling. It's, it's a bit like that. When that you're staging for that event. Yeah, when you're staged, I'm sorry, yeah, like before your event, you're staged underneath, and it's it's a bit like that that scene in Gladiator where you know there's really bright light up there, and you're in this dark underbelly of this the stadium. So out we're rolling. These were guys that you know we'd raced against for years and had to qualify against, and here we are at the final, and we roll out, and your eyes are adjusting, and then there's like forty five thousand people, and the queen and king of Spain and all these dignitaries. And there's actually like television crews there everywhere. (laughs) So it was, it was the real deal. And uh, how many people are you used to competing against competing in front of (laughs) prior to this? Yeah. So we, you know, when we raced on the road, like at a Boston marathon or a Chicago marathon or a Peachtree road race, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of fans, but that's different than when they're all inside one stadium. So that was, that was, I think the biggest group, hands down the biggest group. Well, I shouldn't say that because there there was the Olympic games before that uh, a month before. And, you know, we can get into that story there. There, there was for many, uh, I guess it was six, Olympic Games from 84 to 2004, there was a 1500 meter wheelchair exhibition event for the men, straight final, you had to qualify, only the final, and then an 800 meter for the women. So I had raced in that stadium a month before in the Olympics, in the 1500, there were more people in the stand that day for that 800 meter than there were when I did it for the Olympics. So I was like, wow, I guess uh, time to readjust what I thought the Paralympics were about. So, or, you know, po- you know what, what, what sort of their status as a, you know, becoming a major world event. And <clears throat> Jeff Adams and I, that was a Canadian Jeff Adams that was there. There was Claudie Zerat was in that race who was a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Like I, I think he did like at that point seven or eight 
uh, gold medals in the Paralympics. He was from, he was, uh, he still is an amazing athlete. And so I knew, I'm just a, a farm kid from Illinois. Like these guys are like, when I look at them on paper, my dad, my, my own father used to say like, you know, I got to give it to you, son. You've come a long way, but I got to say, I'm going to bet against you in this race because there's just better. <laughs> right? So, and I, you know, that's fine. That's what I loved about wheelchair racing and track racing in particular. There's, it's, it's, it's a mobile chess game, right? Like it's not just got the fastest sprint or the, the best surge or the best start so they can get position. It's, it's not who's the best tactician out there. It's not who gets boxed or make sure they never get boxed in just like in NASCAR racing or, um, you know, on the track, I was like kind of good at a lot of them, but I wasn't the best at any of them. And I knew that Jeff Adams and Claude Iserot would kill me in a sprint. And I knew I had tried at that point. And Mustafa was in that too, right? So yeah, he was. I'm sorry. I left out Mustafa. So Mendoza was in that race. Like, there was a bunch of people in that race, right? And it was a who's um, who, yes. It was a big race. Anybody in that race honestly could have won that race. They really could have uh, on a different day. And, and because we'd seen each other at world championships and other major world events, like different people had won. Jeff and I swapped the world record in the semi and the prelim qualifying rounds twice. <laughs> so I was kind of thinking, this is going to be Jeff, Claude, anybody else if we make a mistake. And I, and Cisco I realized, was there too, Cisco Jeter. Yeah, he was there. From the U.S. who was like an Adonis. I remember seeing Cisco for the first yeah, time thinking, was. wow, like how can anybody be faster than this guy? Well, I knew he was, he was done before he ever got there because he was so good looking. And he was like so like this like physical specimen that they make sculptures out of. So he had like 10,000 Spanish girls that were trying to get his attention. So I was like, he's done. Um, <laughs> so but you uh, were as prepared as you've ever been for a games, I'm assuming for 92, because you were at the U of I at that point, right? Certainly up until that point. Um, yeah, I had tried out in 88 with everything that I had at that point in my life, given eight years of my life to get to that event. And that didn't include being an able-bodied athlete because I've been running and competing since I was like in the womb with my identifier. So time that I broke my back until then, um, that was, uh, that was eight years. And I, I saw the women's 800 meter wheelchair race while I was laying in the hospital three days after breaking my back. I didn't even sat up. Just this got is the, the demonstration event, event right? I from 84 from LA. Saw that event. And, and, um, I don't know what the chances of that were because it had never been filmed. It had never been done, but that event I was laying there and I looked over at my mom and I was like, I think I want to, I want to try that. Of course, my parents were like, Oh yeah, you're going to go to the Olympics. You'll be a champion. But it really, that's where it started for me. And I, Dove in and I was so blessed to be living in Illinois and get exposed to the University of Illinois program, which had at that point, hands down, the best coaching and system in the world and still arguably does have that. It certainly for somebody who's going to through university or college. So yeah, I got in there. Like I was going there when I was 15 to their summer camps and Marty Morris, who uh, was my coach and dear friend to this day, 
he was writing me workouts and guiding me the whole time. And then when I got there, I got four years underneath him uh, as a coach. And it, yeah, I was, I was on my A game. I was still a little young. That's the only reason I'm not saying it was the best I was ever prepared because until you go into those environments with that, that, you know, just all of it, right. Um, the experience, got, the, the, yeah, the knowing that you can be there. Yeah. I didn't have 10, 10 years later in 2004, I had 10 more years of racing experience. So I think that got better. The only problem was my body was falling apart. <laughs> so um, literally a sweet spot uh, thing. Yeah. So Marty also like he, he brought you guys in training prior to prior to going to Barcelona. He brought you through like all the scenarios, like, brought you guys to the line and then, and then backed off, had all these, yeah. like, uh, had these delays and just played with your minds. Right. He was so ahead of his time in sports psychology and, and preparing for the unknown. And then secondly, like we watched hundreds of hours of any film we could get our hands on of all these other athletes. I and mean, we studied them. We actually had notebooks with, and we ranked all their different skills and how we thought they would run the race. I mean, yeah, we were ready for that race. And Marty's like, said to me, I think you need to go from, from the gun all the way. And that's hard in an 800, right? Like sprint, like you're, everybody's going to go into oxygen debt. Everybody's going to go into maximal lactic acid threshold and beyond and he's like i think that's what you need to do right you can't beat these guys in the finish you can't out surge them in a in a two-lap race you have to throw like 10 surges on people that are that fit and that prepared you can do that in a marathon you can do it in a 5,000. you can't do it in a um and so that was that's what we decided to do and i had tried that a number of times in the 800 but going door to door and we call it door to door Usually you tank, as you know, right? Like you've done a lot. Last hundred meters, you say goodbye to everybody yeah, as they yeah, pass you. Up, you end up being dead last because you just, you just, you're done. Um, you hit the, essentially the, the, the wall of a, of a short race like that. So, so and you were like, in lane one, right? Yeah. And that was by, by, by design. I did everything I could do in the, um, the, uh, the semifinal to get the time and get the place to get lane one. I knew I wanted lane one because I knew Jeff Adams or Claude or um, likely uh, Mustafa, if they got lane one, they were going to go out and they were just going to then slow it down and just create a trap. So I was like, no, we're going. And um, that's what I did. I went off like, like it was a hundred meter. Um, People got in and then they were all kind of waiting for, for me to, uh, to pull over, slow down, whatever. And then, and what that does is if you're in the back or if you're boxed, the back of the pack, and all of a sudden there's not this moment where the race slows down and, and you can reshuffle and, and get into a new position, you're really in bad shape. So it forced the back to go and race in lane two, three, and four, all those big contenders um, and they just didn't have enough space. And so that's what it was. I remember coming around on the first lap. <laughs> I'm feeling it. And we just went into the training. We done for that. We had gone. What did you do for a lap? Do you remember what you did that first lap? Oh, man. Um, 
Okay, so that was the time that wheelchairs broke Coe's world record as, as a runner. So it was the first time that a wheeler went faster than the, the, the best runner in the world for that distance. And, and that was okay, Seb Coe who did that, who had set yeah, that record? Yeah, Seb Coe had done it. Yeah, so from the, yeah, from the UK. Um, so I want to say, Chris, it was, it was, I believe it was 146 was the time. 140, you went 140.63. 140. 140.63, that was it, yeah. yeah. So I think we did the first lap in like a, maybe a 55, which back then a, 50, a, a 52 to a 54 was a decent 400 at that sure. point. Right. And, and then um, the last lap was, I remember it was a negative split. So whatever the difference would have been there. So if we went 50, 55, 45, the other, we must've done maybe like a 50, it was a 45. It was, I remember that. Do you want like, 45? We did a, we did a four. And then, and then I, I managed to pull another 45 in the four by four um, later on in the games. Um, but that's a rolling start. So it's a little different. Um, but 45, so that means you're averaging 20 miles an hour for that last lap. So how did it, so, so you said, okay, this is it. I'm going from the start. I'm, you did a 55. I'm end up dead last, totally blow up, or I'm going to win this race. And uh, so we come around um, at the bell, and I can't remember, I could, I could feel some people trying to make a move, and I was just, just pushing it, you know. And, and so I Cisco was directly behind you. Yeah, and I wanted him there because I – I thought, no offense, Cisco, but I didn't consider him one of the strongest guys. So you want a slower guy behind you. So Jeff sure. had done my right, because then what they have to do is go around two guys. So that's or, 12 feet that they have to make up on you. And go around in lane two. Which, which adds more adds feet. Six more feet. So I was like, that ought to be enough. Not get smart and finish. And that's kind of how it rolled out. Um, Jeff Adams came up, which then forced Claude to go out into three. So now he just added six or seven more feet. And, um, and yeah, I ended up, I ended up making it by like literally that, like an inch. And then uh, if it would have been another foot, Jeff would have passed me. And probably if it would have been another three feet, two or three others would have passed me. So um, yeah, I was pretty, pretty jazzed with that. Uh, very happy with that race and yeah arguably it was one of the best races of of my career um so yeah it was, is, is it was that a you know when you look at this because you raced a lot on the track and and every day training at the u of i was kind of like racing as well right yeah. you had such a talented group of people who were there so tactically i mean you guys were working tactics every, every day it got so ingrained yeah. And is, is that a perfect race? Do you have the idea of what's, what is a perfect race? How would you, how, how would, cause I would imagine you've dreamed this in your mind of like, how, how do you do it? So I only focused on two races in those games, the eight and the 15. And I was hoping I would make the, the relay. And I knew I was going to do the marathon um, just cause it was, it was at the end of the games. And, you know, for those of you that are listening, like, how do you do an 800 and a marathon? Like you got to think more bike racing um we we do get a thing drafting and um it's just a different it's 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 different than running you if you're 
if you're a middle distance runner and you do, and you've done some marathoning in other seasons, you can, you can pull it off. Um, but really the, the only races I went there to do were the, the eight and the 15. And so I dreamed about visualize those races for four years. I'm sure. And I'm sure, I'm sure Marty was helping to curate that visualization as well. Absolutely. Yeah. We, that was just part of what we journaled. We kept journals. That's what we worked on different things we needed to, we, they would set, we would train behind these um, hand bikes and they basically put this wooden box up so we could do like motor pacing on the track. We also did motor pacing on the road. So motor pacing, explain what motor pacing is. So we had a hand bike and that Marty would ride, um, which has gears so it can go faster um, than a, a racing chair. Describe the what the difference is between a racing chair and a, just for the people out yeah, there. Well, and a, in a racing chair is like playing the piano. It's all about form and technique. And, you know, people think, oh, you just have to be strong. It's no, you don't have to be, you have to be strong, but you got to be flexible. But more importantly, you have to, you have to have really clean technique. So like swimming is maybe a better example people could relate to. And what do you mean by clean technique? Like clean on the ring, off yeah, the ring, so and it's just yeah, one so ring, right? Your stroke, it's one ring, but it's not like we're grabbing it with our hands. We're actually almost like punching it. So when you, when you make contact with the ring, with your hand is coming in, you can't get caught on it. Cause some people will catch and it's actually stopping the wheel. So, so it's like a tangential blow really. It, it really is, but then you it can't be a bounce off blow. It's got to go you, follow you to, up and around, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you got to you got to get apply force for the full amount of distance on the ring you can get while then getting into your next um, while keeping your stroke frequency ups. So on a bike, you don't have to do any of that. There's bike has regular gears, and you know you can be in tenth gear or whatever, right? Twentieth gear. You're, you're basically just like anybody else. You're pedaling, so you're not having to worry about the pedal's spinning and you're catching it each time it comes around, you're, you're holding on. So it's much more efficient to apply power to a bike. And there's zero, I'm not gonna say there's zero technique, but it's 90% less. Like I get anybody listening to this could get on a hand bike and go really fast day one. Right. Racing chair, no way. It, it, it takes a lot, some people many years to really get their technique dialed in and they're, they're the, the form of, of how they're going to push develop a, a very um, efficient stroke and powerful stroke. So, and so the difference is, you know, it, it really is the difference between running and cycling where being in a wheelchair in a racing wheelchair, you only have one gear, you have that one push ring. So it's the same on the flat going up the hill, going down the hill, whatever it is where, Whereas on a bike, you can change gears and so yeah. you have that mechanical advantage. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the reason we would motor pace, there's two reasons. One is when you're training, people want to go out and they want to do big miles. Or what I think the most important thing with training is, is that, so if you think of training like a one to five zone, most people are training in that two to three zone, but they're not training in that 4.5 to five zone. And so when you can pace behind a vehicle, be it a bike, hand bike or a bicycle, and there's a fairing up there that's breaking the wind, you're what you're getting sucked into the draft. So now you're getting to practice your stroke at speed at the end of an 800 that you're in a training session. And it's not just you out there, because if, 
if I'm out there alone, I'm getting tired. The wind resistance is slowing me down. The track's slowing me. Down, so I'm not able to train at 20 miles an hour. I could only, if I'm out there alone, I can only train at 18 and a half. So that, that pacing allowed us to just practice and finish those races at a much, uh, those training sessions at a much higher um, speed. And, and so, you're getting used to being at that speed. Your arms are moving at that speed. And, and you're doing it in a turn, but you're also having to negotiate this other thing in front of you. So from, a, from, a, from an awareness of, you know, like it's no good if you're just out there alone because in a big race like that, there's eight people around you. There's a lane on the inside. Like there's so many more factors. So we were able to simulate world-class competition on our track without all those world-class athletes and, and so you could go was, like world record paces oh yeah, yeah yeah we did now of course you're like well i did it with you know like a pace uh vehicle sure. in front of me. Um, but you did it we did it yeah and that's a big difference and obviously it's also teaching your muscle memory how to go fast when you're dying at the end of an 800 and so then it's mentally and psychologically you're just going through these these thresholds and barriers that it's very hard to just visualize that. You actually have to visualize it and do it. And and the timing and going into the turn and maintaining your form in the turn at a speed that you've never done before. All of a sudden, the chair wants to tip up on two wheels, and yeah, we would have a bike, the hand bike in the front, and a person on a a standard bicycle, an able-bodied person pinching us in right like forcing us into the rail and then we would have we would have people that would only do one the first or the last lap of the race bumping you from the back in the turn that's pretty you, you raced you don't get that like that's hard you you've got to spend some time and energy to create that type of a simulation which i loved because years later i went on and was a coach and it was so much fun with our youth team to just go in there and just be ramming them and bumping them and and, uh, you know, and then they're all getting out of their head. Whoa, what are you doing? I'm like, this is, this is racing. This is, this is, this racing. is what it's like for real. Yeah, this is for real. And if you can do this here, you can, you'll, this is going to be a joke when it happens in a, in a, in one of your, your big races for your, your season. So did that race that 800 in, in 1992 in Barcelona, was that sort of your version of a perfect race, like taking it? door to door proving that you were the most fit guy that people couldn't get past you or yeah it was uh it it was a a breakout race for me um it i yeah and it's a bar for me about what i even thought i was full of doing um and uh and i loved it because it was like pushing all your chip on the table and i went all in and it worked <laughs> doesn't always <laughs> um and then, is then that you know, your version of a perfect race though to push all your chips in the middle oh no i'd pushed them in a bunch of times but i hadn't done all the rest of the work and i didn't have the experience um yeah i guess yeah i've, I've gone broke a few times over the years but but it was where the the other pieces were present so that um yeah i, I didn't win the gold medal set the world record in an epic stadium um no like so that's all the right down to like the uh, all of it like just all of it you know how it was there like they were they I actually wasn't there that was before yeah no i wasn't there they they just i i to this day i think it was the best games i went to 
I mean, they came out with wreaths and flowers and, you know, dignitaries presenting awards and, you know, beautiful, just all the, like, all the... The pomp and circumstance of it. The circumstance of it was just hard to... And then, like, we would leave the stadium and there's, like, hundreds of kids waiting for autographs and, you know, people coming to watch us train or just... It, like because we had a, a practice track as well and like anywhere you went you would have thought you know you remember the Beatles it was ridiculous it was absolutely absurd and it's Barcelona I mean come on <laughs> I love that time. uh yeah it was just it was perfect um in so many ways so I yeah it's to this day uh one of I mean, every day is a perfect day. It's easy to say that, but the, but it, they are. But that's this one. That one really still is crystal clear in my mind. Now, it was not always like that for you, though. You had to fight your way to get into that. I mean, back so you had you had your accident when you were fourteen. Got got hit by a by a van on your way to swim practice, right? And and I actually read, and and a lot of people would uh, would say that this this couldn't have been true but your father had told you that the road was dangerous and it was dangerous for you to be out there and then you got hit by this car and and they your father and mother came out and and you're you're like dad you know it it, it really is dangerous like in well, the midst after and, and yeah, i looked at it and i was like i could see scott saying that yeah i i don't uh there were a few jokes going on, but I was in shock, Chris. We'd have to add when well, my dad's passed away. We'd have to check with my mom. We, we, we had grown up cycling. So I, uh, my dad, that's one of the things that we did as a family. We did our first like organized long ride when I was eight and we trained for it. It was a 178 mile ride with packs and gears. And we were on crappy bikes. In one and day, 178 miles. We did it in three days. So okay, longest, that's still. Our longest day was eight, eight, 82 miles. Okay. And, and it, was, it was hard. It's Illinois, like wind, like you can't believe. And, but it was Oh, awesome. I can believe so, it. I've seen it. I've been yeah, in it. Yeah, I know it. So, but we had, we had done a lot of cycling and my dad was really big on, you know, they didn't want us out riding when we were younger on our own. And so, at, 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 and they didn't want us, we lived about five miles out of town. And when, he, when we say this was a dangerous road, like it was it's not like a highway and it's not even like a county highway. It, it's just a road, but people were driving 50, 60 miles an hour. And, and not they didn't expecting to see there. you. Yeah. But my parents, my parents had agreed to let me ride that day. It was incidentally the first time they agreed to it. And the first time I did it, and I was only going to be on that road. I was going to go an extra three miles to get off that road to a even more remote country road. Um, but you know, I've ridden on that road a hundred times since then. It was, it was just, it was what it was. Um, the, there were, uh, there were a number of, of factors that contributed to that. Um, but yeah, regardless, it, it was, it, I had bought the bike the night before I, I worked for Del Monte, a lot of kids oh, do no. in the summer the tasseling corn. So I was actually going to swim practice then on to work to tasseling corn all day. Um, and then I had baseball practice later that night, but Hey, I was 14. You can, you can do anything back then. <laughs> um, but 
uh, and my twin brother that day, we had had a swim meet the night before. Uh, I'd set my first team record because we started swimming a little bit late compared to the kids that started like three. I think we started when we were 11 or something. And, and, um, and Sean, and so I had bought the bike the day before. Oh, no. It was a Schwinn Super Latour 2. And Sean, my, um, my, my twin, he said, I was like, hey, man, are you, mom and dad said we, we can ride our bikes. Are you going to go? He's like, no, nah, man, like, it's, I'm not going to go. Because like, the coach had said you don't have to come to practice tomorrow if you don't want because we meet uh, the night before, you know. I was like, oh, I want to go. Mostly I wanted to ride my bike, Chris, right? I also wanted to go. <laughs> Got a new bike. Yeah. yeah, so it was used, but it was new to me. Uh, Compared to what I bet on, it was, I mean, that was a good bike back in the day. Twin Super Latour 2. Um, and all that came together with the one person that was on the road that had been up all night working and worked all day the day before and um, closed a bar down. And uh, he had driven about 30 miles on these country roads. And, um, and that's what happened. But they heard it. They could hear it from their bedroom because yeah. we, we did. Yeah, they had their windows open. We all slept with the windows open in the summer, and and they knew exactly what it was. Um, but you know, that's that's how it goes. Uh, I do remember. I think my first joke, and I and I have confirmation on this one was my neighbor because um, it happened right in front of his house. He was there first. He also happened to be a paramedic, which was great. Um, and so I'm looking at him and he was one of my good friend's fathers. I go, Tom, what this guy get his driver's license from a Cracker Jack box? <laughs> All mangled and bloody and like, he's like, yeah, yeah, Scott, just, just keep laughing. <laughs> keep laughing. We'll keep you talking here. Yeah, yeah. Don't go, don't go completely into shock. Wow. But so then your, your swim coach came to the hospital and asked when you were coming back to practice, right? Yep, she did. She did. Uh, and um, she did. And she did more than that. Um, she regularly uh, reminded me that for at first, I had a lot of legitimate excuses because I had Harrington rods in my back. And they, I had one of those those clamshell braces on and I had this big recliner wheelchair, you know, and Ted hose on and all this, this stuff. I was pretty gimpy. And they told, they, back then in the mid eighties, they were like, oh, you shouldn't really do anything strenuous for like a year. Well, then they dropped it back. They said six months. And then once they kind of green lighted me, she was there. Like the day she heard <laughs> from the parents, like, so I was thinking, you know, that'd be great for the team if you'd come back out. I was like, oh, Diane, how am I going to get in the pool? She was, I was thinking about that. And I, I, I you know, what I thought was that we'd, we'd help you get out of your, because I couldn't, I couldn't do a transfer to the ground back then, right? Like, um and she's like i was thinking we we put out some kickboards and like for padding and then we just help you get down and then she's like oh, okay well how am i gonna get in the pool she's like i just think we push in <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm like but i don't think like because i'd swam a little bit like in a rehab pool where you're just floating with a the physical therapist when when i was in uh the rehab center but i don't i don't think i can really swim and she's like well i so what I did was I took a pool buoy and I took one of my old knee braces and I cut it in half and I stitched it together and I thought that would that would help get your legs up. I was like, okay. I was like, God, I'm running out of excuses. And um, you know, and you're dealing with all the horror of being a 14 year old 
male in your freshman year, you know, who's now paralyzed with these skinny little legs getting into like a speedo. Oh, yeah, that's going to be humbling. Um, <laughs> so <clears throat> I said, well, how am I going to get changed? Because we, our swim team, this is a little town, keep in mind. We, we used a, a, a small hotel's pool. It was only like 20 yards, right? It was even Oh, really? Okay. Oh, I was yeah. envisioning oh, yeah. you in like a YMCA pool or uh, something. Or, no. We didn't have a YMCA. No, no, no. Think rural here. So, um, so the locker room was downstairs with showers. And so I said, how am I going to change or take a shower? She said, yeah, I was thinking about that. I thought we could, I'll go down and get two five-gallon buckets of water and we'll just dump it over you and rinse you off at the edge of the pool. And then you can change your clothes in this closet over here where they keep all the pool chemicals and the filter system. I was like, okay. Um, and so I was out of excuses and I showed up and I sucked. <laughs> like, and I, I'll, I'll never forget to this day, like the very first lap I get there is like a minute, right? Mm -hmm. well, well, I'll, you know, For one lap on this 20, 20 yard. 20 yard pool. And she says, um, great. That was like 54 seconds. That's our starting point. That's awesome. And it was. And then I went, you know, the, like, the, like it, it was great because I got better every day by a lot for quite a long while. Um, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of fat on that, on that bone. Right yeah, I, mean, it was, I, I couldn't dive. We learned how to do the dive. I would dive off the, the diving blocks um, from the seated position. And I got better at that. I couldn't flip turn. So, I, you know, it, it took me three years. I was 17. Um, and I finally beat somebody. Nice. I think it was an, it was an eight-year-old kid, Chris. Okay, so <laughs> hey, you, you, you take the, you take these uh, notches in your uh, in your belt. His, it was his first swim meet. He had just started swimming. I think he was like four years younger than me, but I didn't care. Right? I was kind of like, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure he's still in therapy because of that, but it was fun. But yeah, so from there, it wasn't all that easy. Um, swimming, getting back on the team, a lot of support. Um, but there was you swam the relay so, still, right? You were still on the relay team. Yeah, I did the relays. I, 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 and I did the open races. I just was dead last every time, but I didn't care. I was, and then meanwhile, I started swimming in disability events and <clears throat> I started doing the, the wheelchair sports camps with U of I and playing basketball and doing these other activities. And then freshman year, uh, there were moments where I, I made some not the best decisions and, and hung out with my buddies that were drinking and doing other things. And, um, but, you know, Diane McNeely, uh, my swim coach was just absolutely critical. And then the track coach who I, I, I broke my back the summer before my freshman year. So I didn't really know him, but he reached out and was like, Hey, do you want to be a manager? I was like, yeah, sure. And it kind of hurt a bit to watch my twin and my friends, you know, playing football and playing basketball and, and, and running track. But I taped up the ankles and I just started going around the track because I, after, because by that time I knew I wanted to race wheelchairs. And so did you have a racing wheelchair or were you just in your everyday I, chair? I was in my everyday. Okay. I was in my everyday. So I started doing that and my grandfather came forward and, um, 
they found a used wheelchair in California that was about my size. Used racer. Used racer. I'm sorry. Used racing chair. Yeah. And uh, it was Bob Malinati's. You remember Bob? Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was like 400 bucks and we got it. You know, we stuffed foam wherever and we were, you know, this is a four wheeler with the bungee cord front end. Like it was old school. And then I had a chair. And so for the, the next season that was soft, going into the sophomore uh, year, I, um, I started going around I, and I, I, I wasn't managing then. I was just behind all the runners and, and going around in circles and, and training. And, and that was all great. And we had to work it out. And, and, but the challenge was the school wasn't crazy about it, even though the coach uh, suggested it. And we were having some, some issues with our school system. Initially, they didn't want me to come back to the school because it was a hundred, about a 92 year old school. And then it had all these additions over the decades and every addition that they put on, they added like five steps here. And so they literally had 20 different levels. So for me to go to school there, like to get into the men's locker room, I had to go through the women's locker room or go up and down four flights of stairs. Um, they had to move classes around. They just don't want to do it. Historically, if somebody had a disability in our community needed a wheelchair, they'd send them up, up the road 20 miles to a different school. And my parents were like, absolutely not. And, and um, not mainstreamed kind of thing. If somebody had a wheelchair, they wouldn't be in a mainstream school. You wanted to be mainstreamed. Well, it was a mainstream school, but it was a totally different town because right. it was accessible. Right. Now, None of your friends. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the transportation, my sisters, uh, two grades above me, all my friends. I think, no, this kid's pretty vulnerable right now. We're not ostracizing him to another county. It was another county away. Yeah. Um, so, um, and they didn't like that. And, you know, but they got over it. They moved some classes around. Um, I didn't get to take some classes because they were upstairs. And then in sophomore year, um, I started figuring out how to go up and down stairs with people. And so I, then, then they, they ended up agreeing to pay. And Sean too, which was probably relatively easy, right? That, that at least he was, I mean, he's your twin brother. So you're like, hey, you, you need to help me do this. Yeah, but imagine. we didn't have the same classes and they had a oh, policy. No, they had a policy that you couldn't be in the same class with your brother or sister. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, but my best friend, Brent Olinger, who is a, a neighbor, he and I had a lot of the same classes. Um, so they said, but we could let Brent be your helper. And he would help me between classes, which means he and I would get out like three to five minutes early so we could go up and down the stairs without 500 kids going up and down the stairs. Right. So that's the way we did it. Um, that way they didn't have to move every class and it really helped. But meanwhile, um, there, there were still, you know, my parents had said, Hey, well, could you actually put a lift in? Cause you know, that would be better. And then they didn't, you know, it was like funding and, um, they didn't want to do that. Excuses, right. So we went to the state had a, uh, a board that reviewed those types of things. And the state told them, yeah, you're going to have to do that. And then like that. So then there started to be some conflict, right? And so then they came back and the, the track team became a leverage point for some of these other issues. The and track team became a, a leverage point? Yeah, they knew how to do the track stuff. So they came back and they got together with the Illinois High School Sports Association and they, they, they decided it was too dangerous 
for myself and for others, and that it might void their warranty on their track, which said that no field vehicles could be on it. Those were the big three. And that it wasn't a part, part of my education. Um, so then we ended up going back to that same state agency um, and they, uh, it started disintegrating at that point on, we, we could, but the state agency could not tell the athletic association what to do just because of the way they structure it. So we ended up <clears throat> getting some advocacy help and then we ended up uh, filing in the courts and got an injunction. So then they worked around that injunction and it just, that's, it went like that. And so this is still um, on the track side or, or is this on the accessibility of the school? Track side. No, they ended up putting the lifts in. Oh, they did. Okay. But a couple of them. Yeah. Um, well, one, and then maybe I think, and ultimately they, they figured out how to get federal funding to build an entire high school because of all this, because they sort of learned the process. So the community ended up getting a whole new multi-million dollar high school and land out of the deal. But you were uh, at on. that point, people were gridlocked. And um, so that ultimately went to federal court um, and it was decided afterwards, but all along the way there were injunctions like they didn't want me to get on the bus to go to the track meets with the team. Again, it was dangerous to me and others. And then, you know, we'd have to call a judge like the day of that track meet in the morning, the judge would be like, no, you're going to do this. And so it was, it was, it was challenging. And then at one point, um, the whole track team said, because we, we couldn't get hold of a judge fast enough that, uh, um, the whole track team said, well, we're not going to go to the meet. And then Solidarity. because the that's awesome. Superintendent. Yeah, it was the superintendent and principal had called up the other superintendents and say, Hey, can you say, or however it went down that this guy's d dangerous. And so the last year I was there and part, I, 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 because what they would do was I would just race behind the right. And it was never an issue, but as I got better, then it was an issue for them, even though there'd never been an incident and hundreds of practices together in, at that point, probably two dozen plus track meets, a couple of events. So they did, they were just always pushing back. Like I'll only do one event. Uh, then they said, well, you have to race alone. Um, and, but meanwhile, if, if it was a combined girls and boys meet, or if there's only one JV runner or one varsity runner, they would, um, they'd combine those groups just for expediency of the meet. I mean, it's a school night, right? Like you don't have all day, but in my case, there were only do one. I mean, it was, it was ugly. It was ugly for a lot of years. Um, we ended up. So you were a sideshow at, at some point, right? I mean, you're yeah. running your own meet. Yeah. You're just, what did yeah. that feel like? I mean, that's the. At that point, it it became an advocacy choice. Um, uh, I knew that, I mean, I thought about just not racing and going to work with a coach, but we recognized none of this is ever going to change in the school systems if somebody doesn't make a stand. So at that point, no student with a disability had ever pressed the issue of the right for, for a disabled student to participate in extracurricular sporting activities which is different than club. It's different. Like this is public education. The only reason we do sports is because it's, it expands the educational to the student. And so it was like title nine. So we basically did our version of title 10 and we knew that this was about the next kids that came and, um, and it kind of took off from there. It was interesting. It got picked up by 
the New York Times, by NBC, CBS, by Chicago, Chicago Tribune, um, Maria Shriver and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I remember flying out there to do a show with them and Good Morning America. And so it was kind of a civil rights issue as, as much as my issue. So when you went out for the track team, how did, how did things work out? Because you were the trainer first, but then, then you started racing and then you started beating people. And yeah, well, uh, first I started just going around behind everybody, uh, I, and I didn't beat anybody that first year at all. But then I, I trained all summer. I did road races that fall, and I was going working with Marty throughout the year. And you got a racing chair, right? That's had, when you got. Yeah, yeah, I finally got the racing chair. That made a huge difference. And then, um, and then, that was so freshman year. I was the trainer and just pushing around in my everyday wheelchair. Then sophomore year, I got a $400 used chair that didn't really fit, but it was way better than the everyday chair. And then junior year, I got a racing chair from, uh, that, that fit me, it was an Eagle. Um, Cause I, I went to the junior national wheelchair events and things in the summer. Okay. And, uh, and so then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, okay, that's, a, a, a racing chair that was fitted, not just a hand-me-down that's like two boot sizes and foot. <laughs> so, and at, throughout that process, I was getting better. And uh, I wasn't setting like an, I wasn't beating folks that were going to state or anything that were running, but I was starting to pass people in the races. And, and then I think it was senior year was the first time I beat my brother. Now, keep in mind, I was just ahead of him when we were both running, and he would beat me sometimes, but usually I kind of get it. And uh, so, and he was a very good runner. He, he was running on the varsity team his freshman year. Okay. Sean, Sean was running, um, he ran like a 520 as a freshman. That's so, pretty so the mile is what you were competing in? Yeah, we were doing the mile. Yeah, not the 1500. We were doing the mile. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I no, did the four 800. full laps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so Sean was a very good runner. He, he uh, tore his knee up really bad in wrestling and all, still ran. And he walked on to a college uh, uh, cross-country team, even in college. Yeah, they, they were like, yeah, you can come run with us. Um, uh, was that at the U of I too, or was that? No, he went to Cornell, but the one in Iowa. Um, <laughs> there's a small <laughs> private school out there our good family friends had gone to. and. They kind of, he could have gone to U of I, he had better grades than me, um, but I don't, I think he, oh yeah, I think, was it his, and then his girlfriend was going to school near there or something, it was one of those deals. He, he ultimately transferred to U of I and graduated from U of I. But you finally got him your junior year, you finally beat him? And I was beating him, yeah, and then I was, uh, senior year, I was beating all the guys, but when they started the issue of, then they started saying you have an unfair advantage, which was even, it was like a separate division. I wasn't even racing. It's like saying that the varsity guy beat the junior varsity guy at a local track meet where they combined the two for expediency of the meet. I was like, something makes sense. And then they were still playing that, you know, he's dangerous and all these things. So, so this all ended up in court and, um, and the, high school, the state high school athletic association got behind the school, which is that that's what their members are school systems. And so, yeah, they weren't, they weren't going to budge. They were, you know, it was, a, it was very akin to title nine and the, 
the, and I'm, I wasn't the first student to ask to get onto a sports program. This has been going on for, for decades. And you had mentioned like, but wasn't there a 1973, that was the equal education for all handicapped children act, which basically right. said they have a right to come to school. And it, and it, and it helped on a number of issues with students with uh, physical and intellectual disabilities, but it didn't, they didn't get into uh, interscholastic sport or activity. So example, this just wasn't sport. Like they didn't want me to be on the speech team either. Um, really? Because, yeah, because of the transportation issues. And then like you go to a school, it's not accessible. It's like, all there's a bunch of extra work. Those girls can just go knit. Um, we had the, the Equal Education for All Handicapped Children Act, which is uh, the, sometimes referred to as the 504 Act. And, uh, or is, can be referred to it like that, but, um, what it, and that so was back law, in 73. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then there was another version of another one along the way between then and 87, but, or some revisions, but what they don't, they didn't have regulations or, and so you can write a law that says all girls have the right to participate in sport. Like that's what Congress does. But then somebody has to go and write the very specific regulations. And so without the regulations, you can still be in a situation where there's a lot of, of, of inequitable um, opportunity for males or females, or in this case, students without disabilities and students with disabilities in sport. So we didn't have any relations. And so, you know, you're calling your representatives and they're kind of like, well, you know, you guys got to figure that out. And that's how things end up kind of in the court. Because if the, the institutional bodies that govern those things the National Federation of High School Sports or the NCAA or whoever it is, if they don't say, hey, we're going to fix this, the USOC, and we're going to develop policies, procedures, budgets, we're going, we're going through all of it. If they don't, you get stuck in this in-between world where they're saying you have a right to do it, but they don't, nobody, they're not stepping up and leading the way in how to do it. And so that's where we were at. We had a law that said we had a right to be there. The judge agreed with it but there were no regulations. So then the judges will get in there and go, no, you're going to let them do two events or whatever it is. But those are all stopgap measures until very defined policy procedures and regulations are developed. So I was, I was at the beginning of that. So it was slow, and, but it's fine. It's what it takes. Um, and your father was involved in that too, right? With you? Is, is, are you guys of a similar mentality in terms of how you're going to affect change and how yeah. you will accept no for an answer? Yes, my my dad was very, you know, now we would say that socially uh, aware and willing to take his free time and personal time and, and, and whatever resources he had to work on issues like that. So he was, um, he, he was a, that type of man. But he always said, it's your choice. Like, if you want to do this, we will support you on this. You know, and I was like, okay, dad, but I had no idea. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours of his time and it more, you know, getting ready for depositions and doing all the things you have to do and going to these ad nauseum meetings and, you know, calling judges on weekends and except paying et out of pocket too, right? For a lot. Oh, of yeah. We, we paid all that. Um, we did, the, we did get, uh, Jenner and Block, which is a major national law firm. Um, they ended up picking it up after like the first year and a half and they did it pro bono. It was, well, we couldn't have done it without them. Um, 
you also, you, you found yourself in this fight as a result of circumstance, right? I mean, it's a, it's a fight you wouldn't have chosen before, but how does that affect the way that you, you know, that you look at your life moving forward as well and, and yourself as a representative in some ways? When you are forced into an advocacy situation and you can, you know, flounder your way through it, it you do learn a lot about how system change works and then you almost feel like oh crap like i kind of have an obligation to because then you see it again and again and and then you you sort of can easily get um pulled in by others or you want to engage in more advocacy, which I would have fallen. Both of those would be true for me. I would get roped in. <laughs> but I also, um, when I got to U of I, they were, you know, we every athlete, student athlete had to be involved in um, student governance. We had to serve and participate in the Disabled Students Association. We raised money for the sports and for other groups. And so we we were expected to be model um, student athletes. And that just didn't mean getting good grades and performing. That meant you were serving your community in the school. So uh, by the time I got through that process, uh, um, yeah, then things, can't you get more skill set? You, you become better at it. And then there's no shortage of things we can work on um, uh, on this planet. Um, so that kind of sets the stage for the, the next 30 years for me. Well, it opens your perspective as well, right? I mean, you, it, it's really easy to go through life as a white male. Yeah. And, and you think that's all you've ever known. So because it's all you've ever known, that's the way it is. And suddenly you continue to be a white male, but now you're in the group that they say, okay, well, you can be part of this track meet, but you're going to run all by yourself, totally separate and be a bit of a sideshow and be a bit of a freak, which is really ultimately what you're trying to avoid. Right. And yeah. it makes you a little bit more sensitive to, to other groups and the, and the feeling that everybody doesn't have exactly the same opportunities. Absolutely. People have used to ask, what, what's it like to be paralyzed? And I said, um, I, I read a lot of philosophy after I got paralyzed, by the way. I got into the deep guys. So As a 14-year-old. Right. I, I started reading philosophy. I was fascinated with it. Well, I would go with my dad on the weekends to the uh, uh, Northern Illinois University, which was like 20 miles away. And and we'd go to the library and he would be doing research on whatever, like he loved to read and do research. And so I'd be in there and I'm like, I don't know, let's see what's going on here. And yeah, so I got into it. But what I said to people when they said, what's it like to be paralyzed? I said, it's like you're, you're on this canoe floating down the river of life as a male, you know, in the country. And all of a sudden, this hand reaches down and picks you up and sets you on the bank. You're watching. In your canoe. Yeah, well, you're out of the canoe. You're on the bike. The rest of the people are still in the canoe. Your friends, the the, the people you used to want to date, the the stuff you wanted to do, 
to, you know, run, dance, swim, all these things just are like floating away from you and you're observing it. And then you're kind of looking at who else is somewhat on the bank um, with you. And um, when you have a disability, you step into um, one of the, the, arguably the most disenfranchised minority group in this country is highest rates of unemployment, the lowest levels of education, the highest rates of suicide, the, the <clears throat> um, lowest age of working age, working able people being employed, and it's not pretty. It, you, you can't get a house, and stuff like this. Like most of the, 95% of the housing stock in this country is totally inaccessible. Yeah, you know, when I broke my back, like I basically became five-eighths of a man or a human being. And that's the way our system works to this day. I mean, there was a big deal locally here because they put in all these curb cuts and people I'm going to the dog park with dog and they're like, isn't it great? You got this curb cut now. And I just kind of smile and say, yeah, it's great. Like, by the way, they just added two stairs to the dog park entrance, right? It's all these half measures and these well-intended, um, well, good intentions with unintended consequences. Right. And the last thing that we often think about are the perspectives of those that are most disenfranchised society. And so, yeah, you can be gay and black and and everything else you can imagine and have a disability. I was fortunate that I had a fairly a stable family, you know, a father that had a decent uh, uh, career and ability to earn an income. And I have a lot of things going for me or we wouldn't be on this call. And education. Yeah, you had some of the opportunities. You had your grandfather buy your first racing wheelchair for you. You, yeah. you had the opportunities that could get you going forward. When you went to U of I, you joined a, you joined a community. I mean, really probably for the first time, right? I mean, you were, you, you were separate. You were the one guy in a I wheelchair. The one wheeler, yeah. I, yeah. The one yeah. we'll do. What, well, was, I, what was that like at U of I? And, and you talk about being part of the community there, but were you, were you integrated, but were you, were you separate? Cause there were enough of you and you were spending a lot of time together that how did that work? How did that dynamic work within the university? Yeah. I had been on two basketball teams and like I said, with the basketball, and I had gone to summer camps and things, but the basketball team that I participated on for, um, three years was the Rehab Institute of Chicago's uh, youth basketball team, which was all inner city kids. I was the only white kid on the team. Um, and, you know, you'd have like kids that had been on black games and Hispanic games that were like shooting at each other. And then we're all on this team together. And, um, and you know, not part of any gang. A lot of yeah. That was a big eye opener for me that, you know, like when we would go on a trip and they're like, this is the first time I've ever left Chicago. This is the first time I've ever been on a plane. The first time I've ever been in a hotel. The first time I've ever been in a swimming pool. One guy told me after I had to go in and get him because he was drowning. And then he told me he couldn't swim. So, <laughs> so, so you realize like, wow, how, did, how are you 17 year olds and you've never been 20 miles from home and been into a, on a plane or a hotel. And, and you just realize like, wow, I've had a lot of privileges here. Like a lot. You didn't so, think you really did. But you did. Yeah, exactly. I just thought, oh, this town sucks and my parents suck. And, but and so to go to U of I, it just went up another level. Instead of it being 12 of us on a basketball team, there were two, there were 
just under 400 students with disabilities. Now there's a thousand folks on campus, so we're like one, but that was huge. And we were, we did interact with the other athletes and, and I was, you know, in you, the students that are in your career path or your, your study path. But we did spend a lot of time around each other. And it was unbelievable because it's, you learn so much from your immediate peers that are on the same, walking the same path you are. So it, it was uh, absolutely it's different fun. than you're going to learn from a doctor or a therapist or, yeah. you know, you're getting best practices and, you know, these kinds of things that you never would get elsewhere. All the practical tricks of the trick people that are living it know. And they're life-saving in many ways. Like, how do you catheters? So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that was great. Um, and and, and the, the program at U of I had been there for a long time, though, too, right? I mean, a relatively long time. First program in the country and really the world where after World War II and they really figured out how to make antibiotics work, they could keep all these uh, paraplegics and, and other uh, uh, predominantly men who'd been disabled in the war alive. And then they came back and they had the, um, uh, you could go to college for free if you're a veteran, but there were no colleges who would accept them. So before it went to U of I, they wrote letters to something like 540 universities and colleges turned on by all of them. But, um, and just for perspective, too, back in, in World War II, which was back when the Paralympics effectively started as well, right, with the Stoke-Mandeville yeah. Games, yeah. but 80% of paraplegics didn't live longer than three years. They were dead in three years. Right? Yeah, that's what I'm right. saying. That It's just, it's wiping them out. It's, it's, it's bed sores, it's infections, it's all of these things that then, then now yeah, there's, a, there's a quality of life and we will expect to live a relatively normal you yeah. know, lifespan right I mean, now. I know you know this, but when we were hurt, so when I was hurt in the mid 80s, and I guess you were a couple years behind, statistically, we were supposed to be dead by suicide uh, 28 years post-injury. 28 years, so it's 31 for me now. Yeah, I'm 30, this will be my 36th. Yeah. Yeah. But what was that like being being at the U of I? So you have all this history. You have you know, being the first. You have an insular group, and and you guys are. I mean, you guys are motivated. Like watching you guys come to races, it was a little bit intimidating for for the other people in races because you're organized as a team. You train together as a team. You work together as a team oftentimes in these races, and 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 you carried yourself with an air. I mean, there's part of it that you were training to be successful and training to be successful. You knew that you were going to be successful where a lot of other people coming to these races were hoping yeah. to be successful. And they're like, Oh man, these guys have a leg up on us. No pun intended. I mean, I don't think much physically changed for me between being a night, you know, 18 year old, my senior year, I wasn't bench pressing anymore. I wasn't any stronger. I wasn't training more, but being around other people and learning from them. And, you know, it's sort of, you're always going to get further when you can find a way to work with others. And that's what we were doing is we were cohesively working, supporting each other, pushing each other further. And, um, 
Yeah, it was a, it was, it was a, a very effective way to develop athletes and to get the most you could get out of them was that environment. So we um, often talk about the, the revelation at one point where you, where, where, where you finally could relax in the, you know, where, where you could sort of settle in and, and you weren't working like, you know, just working as hard as you could, where you realized, okay, I can actually conserve energy here. And, and that was a, that, that was a, a huge moment for you, wasn't it? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you figure out the, the subtle ways that you can rest while you're at peak performance and therefore you're just conserving a 10th of a percent here and half a percent there, you get to the end of the race. Maybe you've, you've got 1% more in the tank at the finish line. Um, yeah, that's that, that, those are those, those, those very subtle shifts that can allow you to perform. And honestly, Chris, that didn't stop. I don't think it has stopped. I mean, pretty now, maybe I'm done at 50, but even going to do Ironman and, you know, spending seven years on that, I was in my mid forties and figuring out, like I would have kicked my butt in a marathon at 45 compared to, to 25 because of that. You just, because of the experience of being more efficient. Being more efficient and also just being more patient and knowing I can close that gap. I got it. You know, you know your body so much better because at that point, even though I had some great on times for a young man, I didn't have the experience in the races that weren't going my way to do things that I was able to do later on because of knowing my body better. So, so in, in a lot of ways, it, you become more emotionally efficient as well. You're not, yeah. you're not stressing in the pack or stressing in the moment, which burns a ton of energy. A ton of energy. A ton of energy. And I was doing other things like meditation, the Wim Hof breathing method, and just breaking my mental. You know, most people shut down at 40% of what they're capable of. Your brain's telling you, and we're hardwired to do this so that we didn't, we saved a little just in case we got chased by a saber-toothed tiger and then ran into a bear, right? Like, it's not just about getting away from that saber-toothed tiger. So our brains, we've, we've evolved to always hold back. And so as you begin to understand that and you push through that, there's a whole nother level out there that I wasn't aware of back then. Um, and you realize how much of this really is mental, right? All things equal on the physical side. So let's go to the mental because I do have a bit of a question of that. You, you had said that when you're a really young kid that you, were, that you were training effectively to be in the military. You did a lot of military training and, yeah. and, and but, but like super stressful stuff, right? Yeah. Well, my dad had... Uh, was in the military. I was born in Fort Benning, Georgia, in Georgia, um, when he was serving the latter part of, of his uh, service. And my grandfather, both my grandfathers have been in the military. I mean, they've been in the Civil War, and I think we fought in everything. I don't know what's going on there, but um, literally back to the Revolutionary War, like they got all that figured out. But uh, my grandpa Hollenbeck, we, we spent a lot of time with in the summers. Like we'd go there for four to six weeks. He, he trained thousands. He became a trainer in World War II, getting other young men ready. Like physical and so, training. Yeah. Physical, mental training. Yeah. Yeah. Our, he was like 
when you go to basic training, he was trainer, <laughs> all of it, you know? And so, yeah, we, we kind of had that. And then Sean and I just got a kick out of it. Yeah. We would, um, like we would put on our little outfits and go on these forced marches. And, um, we did these like rather elaborate BB gun wars, like where people, we had goggles and everything, but there would be 20 people per side. We'd file fire bottle rockets at each other and yeah, on and on. So yeah, we, we sort of had that whole, I don't think this was healthy, but we, we had guns in our hands and cowboys and Indians and all that. And, and then Sean, uh, uh, that's how he paid for in med school. So he was in um, the National Guard starting his uh, junior year because he was 17. So the minute he could go, so I, yeah, I did actually try to sign up. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I called, the recruiter called, and I went through the whole thing with this Marine recruiter. And um, so at one point, he asked these questions. Oh, you know, like, you know, what, what's your fitness program? I was like, oh, I swim. And, and yeah, I'm on the track team and I gaze and, and, you know, half marathons. Oh, this is great. This is great. How many do, and I could do like 40. How many, what <laughs> could you do? 40, 40 pull-ups. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, he was just drooling. And then at one point he's like, yeah, well, do you have a, any, any physical disabilities? Oh yeah. Yeah. And so, like, as an, as an example, he'd been asked, like, yeah, have you guys done some shooting? So my grandfather trained us to shoot when we were very young, like the proper way you train someone. Um, and, like, down to, like, we were sighting into it, had all these elaborate ways to sight it and, you know, target practice, all this sort of stuff. Um, but, as you know, they, they won't take us, Chris. And so then in college, I thought about um, – doing something with the CIA for a while. And then I, I just got more into sport and advocacy. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. You also stressed yourself too, right? I remember you telling me that like you and Sean would, would try to like push each other out of the water. Like when you're in the pool or something like that, like to see who could stay down the longest. And yeah, we would, who could hold their breath the longest. We would do, um, I mean, at this point I would look at it and they were like, we would kind of like be doing dunking each other until somebody would pass out. And one point, and so when you get to that point, by the way, you're going into full fight or flight mode, like with the other person, because you feel like you're drowning and you are. And I remember once it was a game and we probably were 11 and I was winning that time. And I thought I got him and I gave him one last shove and I swam over because we're both just wiped out. All of a sudden my mom looks over and is like, why, why is he not moving on the bottom of the pool? <laughs> so yeah, it was... You know, when you, when you have an identical twin, like you're so, like it's this genetic clone. It's you're so evenly matched. It's not like having a brother that's a year older, right? Like you are evenly matched. So we were just constantly pushing each other to the extremes. Now, he went on and was in the military and then he, he got into the special operations side of it in the army. He's a doctor, by the way. So he, he and then he got in with Task Force 160th and, uh, seventh group, which is a Green Beret group, and he, he served 21 years, and it, they were at war. Uh, 18 of those, so he, he a lot of deployments, but he had to do all the training. So I remember when we went to prisoner war camp, and he would tell me all these stories, and so then we would recreate them. Um, so one of them was they would cane these guys um, with bamboo, and I was like, "Oh, what was that like?" And he's like, "Well, let's just let's try it." And like we 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 came to each other people are gonna be like this guy's crazy but like there was just this 
you know, and part of when you do distance racing and you, you have to raise your pain tolerance. And so I stopped it at the point that we were both bleeding and, and, you know, looking back, I'm like, that was stupid, but there was something about that. You know, I wasn't going to quit before he did. <laughs> What's a little, that's, that's where your wife has to be the voice of reason. Like, yeah. what do you guys do? No, stop that. Total idiots. Yeah. We still do that now. Like we'll do ice baths or we'll do, breathing exercises and just like how long can you hold your breath right and you know we've both done over three minutes um if then that's that's that Wim Hof stuff right like right. You, once you once you get it away longer um but yeah but, but that was part of your train I mean it became part of the mentality that you brought to your training too didn't absolutely. it yeah absolutely um as as another uh racer and mutual friend of ours Keith Davis used to say like you guys are like making an art out of suffering and you seem to like it. <laughs> You're trying to suffer so, more. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but, but that, you know, that's part of what it is. You know, really, if you're going to do an eight, 1500, even a marathon, it's part of like, how far can you push yourself? Um, and it's the same thing. When you look at like the Navy SEALs, like that's a lot of what makes them as effective as they are is that they're, 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 testing and studying the mental and physical processes involved with knowing that you can you've got more is that something that can apply to the average person i mean people can say oh but he was a you know, he was a world-class athlete he was the best and one of the best in the world at what he did you know like how, how does that appeal to people is it a change in perspective just in looking at it thinking okay my pain is part of is part of what's going to make me better and I can get better at dealing with the pain. Yeah, I can, I can develop a stronger relationship with anything in my life. I can de develop a stronger relationship with unconditional love. I can develop a stronger relationship with what are my communication patterns? How do I like to receive information? How do I like to give it better yet now? How do others like to receive it? <laughs> so now we can be more effective at communicating. I apply high performance in my life now to when I get home from a 14 hour day where I've got a UTI, I haven't eaten, I'm wiped out and I walk, roll in and I see that my wife's had a, a challenging day and I dig a little deeper and know that I can actually cook a meal, clean up all the dishes, sweep the floor and do a load of laundry jump in that bed. So. And guess what? Our relationship works a lot better when I can show up like that. And she does too, by the way. She's right, always sure. it's not a one way. Right. But, um, you know, think about a, a mother of three children, young children, infants. I mean, these guys, these women are on 24 hours a day. They're literally the life source of this other being and they have to do all, all this other stuff. So, is it really that hard to figure out how to get 10% more out of my training or my work day? No. <laughs> I can't imagine being on for the first 15 months with a young child through being a toddler while you have two other kids, you know, let alone if you're a single mother that doesn't have basic security and, and doesn't know what, you know, they've got a week's worth of money and food. Um, so it's, at this point, it's helping me see just these amazing people all around us and how they're doing it and, and how that, that really, that's life.
and you know we think oh you know isn't great you want to medal or you you know ran a 120 marathon it's it's I, like that's great but you know i look at one of our friends who has five kids and and has gone through divorce and alcoholism and joblessness and not not her but the broader family and that's a marathon that's endurance that's one with no finish line well there's a finish line i mean the 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 the, the grit and the unwavering moving forward you know nobody's given out awards to them <laughs> right it's just and, and and i think that's that's uh how do you prepare yourself to battle like that and and how can you how do you share that message with other people <laughs> like now or back then <laughs> <laughs> i don't know you you can answer it however you like yeah there might be an evolution to this i have spent a number of years now figuring out how i can connect to to source to to my life force compassion as a human being my ability to be of service to others which includes figuring out how to how i function first because we really can't do a whole lot when we don't take a really deep look and into our own ways of beings and our own patterns and you can't give much if you don't have anything to give right yeah, yeah. And it's all inside of all of us. You know, we've, we've, we have played, as, as Shakespeare said, the world's a stage and every actor here has played every part, right? So we have, through our collective consciousness and through our ancestors and our lineage and our shared DNA, we, we have such a wealth of, of knowing and of sitting in our in our bodies in a relaxed way and and then wherever we go pumping gas going to a meeting you know if i can just radiate like this is great and here's another amazing angel that's showing up in my life and they might be showing up as an angel that's testing me and doing exactly what i don't want or think i don't want and they might be super frustrating me, but that's where the juicy growth occurs, right? Like you don't learn a lot when everything goes your way. You learn a lot when you get tested. And success, success guarantees fail because you're going up to a higher level. And the only way you're gonna get to that higher version of yourself is process of success and mistake and failure. So it's for me now, it's just this magical. I just love it. It sounds crazy, but I kind of love it when stuff just doesn't go my way. You know, like who, who moved my cheese? I'm like, I hope they moved all of my cheese, right? And, and then sometimes I want to break and I, I want to have a nice, you know, a bath or something. But, um, and then there's this entire level of energy and excitement and enthusiasm and and alchemy that like i get to step into every day and it's magical it's just it's awesome well it, it's magical when you realize 
that that's yes. the battle that you're fighting, right? I mean, I think that, that in a lot of ways, we look at our lives in terms of how can I make my life more comfortable? Whereas I think some of what you're talking about is how can I find a way to master myself in the moment, in this difficult moment, and be able to perform and be able to be able to perform at my highest, but also be able to help other people mm -hmm. uh, in, in that moment and, and maintain a sense of perspective and the realization that I have that, that I can I can determine how I want to react mm -hmm. to something, that I'm in charge of yeah. what's going on. And it's really easy to lose that, but it, and it's also easy to put barriers in front of ourselves. To, to create the sense of resistance to who we want to be, because in a lot of ways, it's kind of a scary part, right? I mean, it's kind of scary going, okay, well, this is, this is who I am. And so this is, this is my job going forward is, is looking for more battles, moving your cheese for, for things being more difficult. And well, and I, well I, it doesn't always have to be difficult, but one, like it's also being in that state when everything's going wonderfully, but part of having the, the things not go and all ultimately as we adjust our idea our conditions as we 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 don't go in with all these preconceived conditions or 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 buy into the way that that we're societally expected to be we, we come in there with more fluid it's like it's like surfing right like you're just you're just present to what's happening on the top of the wave or getting tumbled through, you know, underneath the wave. Um, and then when we get tumbled under the wave, I think for me, it allows me to be in a, a, a more of a state of gratitude for when I am really comfortable and it's all going great. So I think the it's full both spectrum. Sides, yeah, yeah. It's a full, it's both sides of the coin. Um, because if, yeah, it's, you know, I know there was a lot of times in my life where there was this, beautiful thing happening and I just tuned into how it could have been more beautiful with this idea or story or precondition that I had instead right. of just being present to the utter sheer magnificence of, of the moment. I kind of rambled on there, Chris, but uh, okay. you, you can, gave me can a softball. <laughs> I, I know exactly. It's my fault. Uh, can, can we finish? Can we just wrap it up with, you know, cause we went through the whole high school thing and you earned your way, you went, earned your way into, into, you know, into getting, getting access for a lot of people. I mean, you fought to get access for other people. You went to college, you proved that you could be one of the best in the world at that wheelchair racing. I mean, you broke world records, you did all this stuff, but on the highest level, you were still fighting that fight, weren't you? that fight for the validation that you were fighting for back in high school. And let's be honest, part of this wasn't for others. Part of it was maybe, you know, if I'm doing things that I, that others might perceive of being service to others, you know, maybe they won't call me on my, my bullshit as much. Right. Like it's okay if I'm late or I miss something or I, I I'm not my word if I'm out of integrity but then secondly, and even harder, is, you know, maybe I'll be lovable enough as yeah. a human being that I could love myself, right? That you need that externally, that if, if other people love you enough, then it yeah. says, hey, you're, you're okay. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's, he's a good guy. And, um, 
and it's a mixed bag. You know, it's all of that, right? It's not, it's nuanced. It's, it's, it's not, it's not like we can take a cardboard cut um, and just say, this is this person. I, I suppose in some ways, like it, it was, it was serving my goals or what I thought was right, whatever that is. So yeah, I went on and did stuff with the United Nations. I went to developing nations and we, we did and saw just, you know, they, they still die within three years of paralysis there, as an example. It in a lot of developing nations, right? Pretty, you know, people coming in and we took down like a hundred wheelchairs that we collected and raised money for. And there were like a thousand people that showed up and they're coming in on like, shopping carts with bleeding sores and these modified pieces of wood with some wheels on the bottom and, and then they get to jump in your chair for two hours and you just realize that you know, we're just like this drop in this ocean and that there's there's so much more that we can do and afford more people to have just a, a modicum of dignity and just meet their basic needs. And uh, <clears throat> so then went on and did some corporate stuff and got back into the hardcore US advocacy game. And, you know, I did that like six years with the International Paralympic Committee as, a, as an athlete rep and trying to like speak for the voices of the athletes with visual impairments and, 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 and with with hearing impairments in the Paralympics and then with intellectual disabilities and then with paralysis and quadriplegia and polio and, and every sport inside of track and field, which has like seven sport rows and jumps and, you know, on and on and on. And, and then I, I, I got burned out. You know, I just, I just was like, all right, I guess I've served enough now to be lovable. And we, we had a child and I just, I was done traveling and I knew, you know, and, and my wife about left me twice and, and so then I was like, okay, I'm going local. I'm going to show up and, and I need to learn how to be a father and a husband and a neighbor and a friend. I'm still working on all those. Great. And now my daughter's older, so I'm sneaking out more into community and, and these other areas. But it's just, it's just what a beautiful thing, this, this chance to be alive and experience a body and 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 go through all these ex the experience of life that's what's going on that's where we're at now so <laughs> and, and so just to end it just to end so so are you are you lovable now and why i'm lovable now because i'm starting to recognize that i always was and i just had to see it in a different way um you know there's some longer the, the journeys and experiences and learning which i i'm never going to try to to quit. I'm looking at like my computer sitting on a five book compilation. It's the life and teachings of the masters of the far East. It was written in 1920 by a guy who went over when um, Nepal and Tibet were still intact and, and those cultures were primarily intact. And then I got another one called invisible leadership and another one becoming supernatural. So like, it's like, just <laughs> like, keep i'm still trying but i'm lovable enough like i've learned at a much higher level to to accept that and i would say that there's been a lot of spiritual development that's, that's occurred these last seven years it's been just lovely well, active and evolution too right i mean you've been a you've played a big part in that i think for me looking at that one of the questions is you know it's like are am i lovable you look at yourself but then and I think we all end up doing this for us in some ways, it might be more profound. 
one of my biggest problems was looking at myself through the eyes of other people or what I expected they would, the, the way that they would look at me. And, and that's, there's a no win situation there and you're not giving any benefit to the other people as well. So it's an easy, easy way to keep yourself down. And I think part of that evolution that you're talking about is getting to a point where, where, hey, I don't need the external part. I I, I need to know that the process is good and and that I'm I'm trying to be a good person and, and doing my best to make that happen. When we can let go of the shame and when we can let go of the idea that we have to be a certain way and do certain things to also live up to others' expectations. When you're talking about the other person and how they perceive you, right? Like, I don't have to get a haircut now. Like, I don't have to, like, I don't have to show up in a way they want me to show up. I'm going to show up with love and an open heart, but this is what you get. And it may not, it may not work for everybody. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. <laughs> Well, this, this really has been wonderful. You've taken on, us on, a, on an amazing journey, really of, you know, it's a personal journey, but it's a journey, a journey of community and a journey that continues to evolve where you have, you have the journey of the sports side of things. You have the journey of building, building up for a lot of people like yourself who don't necessarily have as big a voice as you do. And then, and then trying to figure out how you can, how you can continue to do it without necessarily saying, I have to be on television. I have to be on a plane. I have to do this. And, and, and I think that's the human, uh, human journey. And, and you've given us this, this entree into the human journey. So thank you very much for being a part of it on living it, which is, that's the whole idea. That's it. Uh, thank, thank you for, for those words. And I, I will, um, Disagree with you on one point. I, I didn't do this, Chris. You did because you're helping. You've committed your life to sharing your story and helping other people share theirs. So you you, you called me and you created all this. But I, I thank you for it. So. Well, it's a mutual mutual appreciation. That is for sure. Thank you for giving me the time, and I, I look forward to other people getting a chance to listen to your story. So thank you, Scott, and keep doing what you're doing, man. We'll do we'll it. See you soon. All right. <laughs> Bye, Chris. Take care. Thanks, Scott.